That might be true. But what's the context? You know, how long before sleep? Are you talking about mixed meals? What calorie load are you talking about? Huge meals, small meals? Are they protein centric? Are they not protein centric? Are you an athlete who exercised in the evening and you need fuel? It's like, hey, what's the context? Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Bubbs, Performance Nutritionist, and this is Season Number 7, Episode 17. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Mike Ormsby, a professor of exercise physiology and performance nutrition researcher at the Institute of Sports Science and Medicine at Florida State University. In this episode, we're going to discuss his research on nighttime pre-sleep feeding strategies to optimize metabolism, recovery from exercise, performance, and more. We'll chat about the use of wearables to flag COVID-19 and illnesses and athletes and the data his group collected during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we'll segue into his research on the chronic use of collagen to manage pain, as well as hear from Mike's insights on 15 plus years of research experience and sport as well. As always, you'll find the links to the research papers discussed at athleteperformancenutrition.com on the podcast tab or by visiting drbubs.com. All right, let's get rolling. My conversation with Dr. Mike Ormsby. Mike, really appreciate you coming out some time today. Thanks, Mark. Really pleasure to be here. Um, I know we've been meaning to set this up for a while. Yeah, exactly right. So I appreciate you uh, coming out some time. And I think a great place to start would be just to give uh, listeners and viewers a little whirlwind tour you know, of your background, and then we can dive into some of the, the work that your group's done. Sure, yeah. Um, so I guess I'd put myself in the performance nutrition um, area uh, as well, but coming up through regular schooling, you know, those things really didn't exist, merged as one program. So my background's in exercise physiology and then nutrition, and then end up doing a a PhD in bioenergetics, which is, you know, nutrient use through activity and a more of a metabolic perspective. Um, But again, a lot of us who are kind of researchers now started in athletics. So I started, uh, I played ice hockey all the way through college. Um, I know you're with the Penguins (laughs) for a little while, so so, I'm a Flyers fan, so I can't really like Uh that. So (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so it was, you know, basically built out of athletics, wanting selfishly to be bigger, faster, stronger, was studying these different areas and then, um, you know, wasn't going to be professional and started kind of hammering in on some of these things that just intrigued me. And a lot of it was clinical, actually. We started moving towards obesity and sort of management of that for a very long time with nutrition, exercise, supplementation. And then we, uh, we, we also do, do the athlete realm. And so currently, though, I'm at Florida State University, and I serve as the uh, director of the Institute of Sports Sciences and Medicine. I'm also a professor in the Department of Health, um, Nutrition, and Food Sciences. So have these sort of different hats. I teach the performance nutrition courses here at FSU, as well as the endocrinology um, class uh, that exists here for our graduate program. Um, and then work as the grad program director for, for all of, uh, uh, of as well. So yeah, different areas that we're, that we're working in, but that's how, that's how I'm here. Yeah. Florida state just 15 years now going on. Amazing. Right. Time flies and, uh, interesting to be wearing different hats. I mean, a great way to kind of see problems through different lenses and 
maybe we can even start with the bioenergetic side of things because in terms of practitioners really kind of understanding physiology first and then working your way backwards to figure out you know what are the nutrition strategies or supplementation strategies that might be able to support you know could you talk us through how you think about it or maybe how you explain it even to your students around let's say we have a sport like ice hockey versus a marathon runner you know versus um a team sport athlete like a baseball player you know how how do you kind of help to to really bring to life those those discussions around physiology that you know sometimes for students when we're just getting granular could be uh, you know they lack that kind of texture yeah it is it is a bit of a challenge but i think uh in this day and age i always start with the bigger picture um and even in our research we sort of design these these different things to say what's going to make an impact and then we then we work backwards to why what is making that difference and i sort of think about that if I'm teaching an undergraduate class, you're more likely explaining things in terms of if you do this, this happens. Uh, if you do this, this should happen. And then you sort of get to the graduate PhD level and it's like, this is happening, why? And then you get to the, you know, further on postdoctoral and you can actually figure it out yourself and you're doing some of these molecular techniques. But, you know, I've heard many great researchers and practitioners uh, say that, you know, PGCA, is not going to win you the gold medal. You know, you're going to have a, a protein change in a muscle that's mTOR driven. Well, that's not winning you a gold medal either. It's sort of the combination of how those background elements line up. And honestly, for me, if those other things are all moving around these different proteins, it doesn't matter to me if the performance isn't changing um, or the health outcome, if it's a, a health driven sort of a, a study, but that's where we go. I, I don't like to get into those details um, with my undergraduates, if there's no reason to, because it, there's no difference being made. And um, I'd, I'd like the molecular. I, I realize we need it to figure out why, but honestly, like it's very hard to relate that to an athlete, a coach, particularly if you're not seeing a driven outcome uh, um, actually taking place from the work. Yeah. It's amazing. Isn't it to sort of be able to grab, um, the attention of a, an athlete or a coach to be able to explain things in a simple way. Like you're saying, is it actually impacting the bottom line, the outcome? And then great to have the skill set that you have though. On the flip side, if things are, if you're really having to take a deep dive into a certain problem area, kind of go down the rabbit hole a little bit and figure out what, you know, what are the mechanisms at play here and, and how can we influence those? So that's, that's uh, yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's like just an example we we've done and we can, we can go down this lane of, of uh, pre-sleep feeding, but you know, when we started that line of work, which was way back in like 2010 time, when we started doing our first studies in that space, it was just an, basically a big picture idea it was I saw athletes eating and they were shredded. <laughs> they were the leanest people I've ever <laughs> seen in my whole life. And they were eating at all kinds. And some of them in like, you know, the physique sort of athlete, where they're waking up in the middle of the night to purposefully eat more food or have a protein mm. shake or whatever it was. And so it, that was sort of um, at odds with what you're seeing on TV at the time. That was like the height of the biggest loser phenomenon on television. And you're hearing people say, stop eating at this time, stop eating at this time. And so um, we can go into sleep, but we didn't even worry about sleep for a very long time. All we were looking at was metabolic and outcomes like weight gain, fat gain, muscle gain, uh, were really our primary outcomes, what was going on with our, our metabolic rate, for example. Um, and so we just looked at this big picture. Let's do a basic study. If we feed you several things before bed, what happens to your morning metabolic rate? And it wasn't until we got more 
answers, which we came with more questions that we started actually doing a little bit more with um, the details. So right now we're running a large uh, federally funded study that we're doing. You, I mean, everything you can imagine with fat metabolism, we're looking at. Now, these aren't in athletes, but these are in uh, folks where we can actually figure out if resistance training or endurance training is going to more uh, beneficially impact all of fat metabolism. So lipogenesis as well as lipolysis um, and every radioisotopic tracer biopsies, you know, the whole deal we're throwing at this to go really deep. But most people, if they're asking me what's going on, I'm just telling them the this is what you need to know. And this is why. Um, and the, this other molecular changes are kind of fun for me to know, but it may be you too, but there's not, there's not a ton of people who want to know those other details. Well, that's interesting when we talk about the context, we've got the general population on one hand, like you say, I mean, trying to cut off feeding at certain times can be a helpful heuristic to, to limit total energy intake and help with things like potentially sleep. And then on the flip side, we've got our athletes who need to fuel and to your point, like we've seen some pretty lean athletes and man, they seem to be eating at all hours of the night. Um, yeah. So if we go down that lane with some of the research here, you know, pre-sleep feeding, sleep quality and markers of recovery in Division One NCAA female soccer players. You know, could we start there and then kind of walk us through what you did there and then some of the key findings? Yeah, uh, I think we probably need to start the story even before that. So sure. prior to that, um, around 2010 or so, there was like basically two labs that were working in this space. He, one of them was Luke Van Loon, who's you know world renowned for his his work, and then he was real much more mechanistic with muscle protein synthesis responses, whole muscle protein turnover, etc. Um, and then we were more applied, so we were doing just basic metabolic rate, weight gain over time, strength changes, you know, these different angles and. What was really fun was sort of teaming up with with Luke at several of these uh, like American College of Sports Medicine meetings to do tutorials on pre-sleep feeding. We've, we've done two of them over the last 10 years uh, together with uh, with his group and my group. And um, and it's fun now because there's an explosion of this work. There's you know many different labs that are contributing to this now. So it's almost every day I'm seeing something new come across where. Um, it's impactful to what we're eating before bed for different reasons, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so that's where it all began. We did several of these. And then in 2020, obviously we had this, this shutdown with COVID and we had to pivot a little bit. And so uh, our associate director of athletics research at our Institute is uh, Lisa Angelis. And she's also the director of performance uh, for athletics. And so we right. have, a seamless relationship there. Um, and some of the athletes had whoop bands on. And so she reached out and she's like, Hey, you know, what's, what's your relationship with these wearable technology companies? Do you have any ends? And she's like, well, we use these. And what we ended up doing was writing a grant right away to, uh, outfit, um, 500, roughly 500 female athletes with the whoop bands at four different universities. So it was, it was our school. It was South Dakota state university it was uh, UNC Chapel Hill and mm -hmm. Nebraska. And so we picked these places because I knew PIs at each of them and also worked with athletes. And so I knew we could probably get in to the, those different areas. And so whoop provided yeah. bands to all of these teams and they, the coaches and the strength coaches and performance team all got access to the data for that season and so while we couldn't have people in the lab, we were now using these technologies to track uh, these these women. And we everybody was de-identified by the time I saw the data from Whoop. So it was basically retrospective. So yeah. Whoop 
Whoop ran the study. We got access to the de-identified data at the end. And they even put in a ton of questionnaires um, into their app that all the athletes were getting around um, what they were eating before bed. So that was really nice to sort of see what they were doing. And so the only data we had was in, there was like this Dutch study where it came out that in the evenings, these athletes are roughly taking seven grams of protein before bed if they ate before bed. And, you know, when we're talking about a dose that Luke or I would recommend at 40 grams or so, it's wildly um, under, under uh, dose there. And so, yeah, we saw it was low. And so we wanted to test it in our uh, division one female uh, players. And so we looked back through the data that we got and it was horrific. The data was so, they were so bad. We didn't get great compliance with the, the feeding data. It was confusing. And so once we sort of cleaned the data set, because it was, it was so all over the place, we ended up with the best compliance from soccer because um, we okay. had access to what sport it was. And that's probably due a uh, large part to um, uh, our associate director, Elisa's relationship with soccer. She was their key strength and conditioning coach as well as performance scientist. Now she ran gotcha. everything, but that was her team. Um, yeah, yeah. And so in that, in that way, they were very compliant. They were, and by the way, like FSU soccer plays in the national championship tonight. Um, so they've been there, I think, four times in the last six years, I think they've made it to the national championship. So they're very, very good. And their compliance shows and Elisa has them on a really good program. So we use those guys and then some of the soccer from the other schools, I guess we had enough numbers to fill that in. Um, That wasn't the best data set. It wasn't the cleanest, but we thought, you know what, let's at least try to get information about what these um, U S teams are doing. So we had the Dutch athlete data. Now we have sort of a U.S. female athlete database and honestly, Mark, it was like spot on it, it. It was like seven grams. It was maybe 7.6 grams, I think, total that they were that they were consuming before bed. And that was just like the Dutch data. Oh, yeah. And, w- and what were the typical things that they were going for before bed? Were there some examples of intakes or? Yeah, but it wasn't clean. I mean, it was all over the place. Um, yeah. And the average calorie load was a little bit higher. You know, they definitely had carbohydrates and fats mixed in there. Most of the time it wasn't a single cert, single macronutrient feeding like the research has, you know, it was food. Yeah, yeah. Like we typically yeah. eat, it was food. <laughs> Make the um, Yeah. And, um, and they're kids. We got to remember these are like 18 to 21 year old kids, you know, so, yeah. so that they're eating. And, and then they had some advice and directions from their coaches and stuff. So some of that probably played a role, but yeah, they had, um, like uh, some of the teams here were, if it was a protein dominant food, we're going for like a yogurt. Um, sometimes it was just like a milk or a milk based product, but sometimes yeah. it was just to get calories in because we know that's a problem, particularly in some athletes and some female sports, especially. So um, yeah, well, I can't give you a good idea for what they were. It was very much a mixed bag. Uh, and then again, recording was so hard. Sometimes it'd say like, Oh, there was Turkey. And then it was, like a whole turkey. It's like you didn't eat a whole yeah. turkey. So tell me what you <laughs> tell me what you what did you actually take in? Yeah, uh, so we were limited I, there for sure. I was just going to say, over your time then at the university, even just seeing kind of this evening fueling or refueling in athletes, like how much that's changed, even you know, 10, 15 years ago, what they were or weren't consuming. Yeah, tremendously. I mean, it was not even on the radar. Um. And now I see our sports dietitians that work with the teams, you, you know, just to clarify, I don't, I don't work with the teams. I'm the research guy. 
yeah, that sure. sort of liaise to the teams. <laughs> but the performance nutrition team is excellent and, and they have protocols for what they want them to be eating. And they are uh, tending to be protein dominant or recovery dominant. And I'm you know, aware of some of your other uh, podcasts that you've had other speakers on about sleeping before bed. And honestly, that changed what we're doing now. So almost every time we publish these metabolic papers, we would get feedback like, how was their sleep? How was their sleep? Um, and I didn't even think about that for the first few studies we designed, like 2010 to 2015. Finally, I'm like, fine, fine. I'll put a questionnaire in here and we'll see what <laughs> it is. Uh, and so we did a questionnaire and we saw no difference between whatever we were doing, say 40 grams of carbohydrate, 40 grams of a whey protein or a casein protein. Um, and they would record no difference. And then we'd get feedback. Well, you're not doing it right. You need to do wearables or polysonography or something else. Um, so then I wanted to control it more. So then we did several studies where they slept in the lab. So they would actually lay okay. down. We put mattresses out. My poor grad students, gosh, they go through it to sleep <laughs> there all the time. Um, the name is sports science. Yeah. So, you know, and we did it. We controlled it. And we had very good numbers on these um, sleep metrics. But then the comment was, that's not real world. They can't sleep in the lab. They don't sleep there. I'm like, well, you just told me to have them sleep in the lab. Yeah, exactly right. So then we put trying to back. move the needle here. You know, they, they did. They moved the needle and now we're back to, well, then we went to like whoop or fatigue science bands we used for a while. And then we used, uh, now we're using whoop for some of our studies just because we had grants to them. Um, and, and so we can track that a little better in terms of what actually was happening. And so now you said what's happened over time. Now I'm seeing a, almost a lash back against eating again, but not for reasons of gaining fat or weight for sl problems with sleep. And so I have seen this from major companies over and over on social media, publishing statements like reduced recovery by 10%, reduced recovery by 25% even. Um, don't eat two hours before bed. Your recovery is going to go down. And these are major industry players in our field that are publishing this on their sites. And you can probably guess the ones I'm, that I'm uh, alluding For to sure. here. And honestly, like I try to stay out of it because it's just too much mind drain to like get involved. Yeah. Uh, and my wife's like, don't reply to that. And then inevitably I'm <laughs> over here like, ah, <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. And Difficult so, not to. yeah, there's just no context. And so that's my problem with it. That might be true, but what's the context? You know, how long before yeah. sleep? Are you talking about mixed meals? What calorie load are you talking about? Huge meals, small meals? Are they protein centric? Are they not protein centric? Are you an athlete who exercised in the evening and you need yeah. fuel? Uh, playing so, night games is a different story than if you're absolutely. playing once a week on Sundays. Absolutely. And so there was just no context. That was really my comments on those things. Like, hey, what's the context? Because, for example, we've worked with um, – uh, Ultra, Ultraman uh, Florida is here. And that's a three-day ultra distance race that finishes with a double marathon on a Sunday. So like Friday's a like a 10K swim and a very long bike ride. Saturday's an even longer bike ride all day. And then Sunday's a double marathon. And wow. every night, and it's not continuous. So you stop the clock when you finish the day and you start again at like six in the morning the next day. Well, mm -hmm. if you're a fast runner or a fast biker or fast swimmer, you could finish earlier in the day and have in kind of an, a normal afternoon just focusing on recovery and eating. But if you finish in the slower category, you don't have much time. 
and you haven't yeah. eaten very much. Whatever you can you get probably, in, and, you probably need more time to exactly. <laughs> and the goos and gels and stuff—they're so tired of this. And so, you know, I have these slides when I give talks about this, and it's like, you—it's not a like you might be required to eat before bed, or you will not finish your event or your race. And so, again, context is so critical here. Um, and so what we've done now, like you didn't ask me, but where we're going with this is where we've finally designed some studies where we're going to look at um, specifically in athletes, female athletes, uh, three days of feeding. And we're going to feed several different things over over weeks. And the reason we did three is because people say, oh, it's an acute effect. So you're not really understanding how their sleep architecture is. So we said, okay, let's do more than that. And so I wanted to do, you know, every day, but uh, there's only so much you can do before the athlete pushes back and won't, won't participate. Sure. So we're, we've landed on three days. And so we're, we've designed these studies where we're going to give what we think is the ideal dose of uh, uh, alpha lac, which we can talk about. This is kind of, kind of a new, it's been around a while, but a new player in the block for like pre-sleep sleeping. It's high in tryptophan. Um, then we're going to do a traditional uh, way. And we're going to also um, do a casein and we're going to do a placebo. And then so these women will consume their elite athletes in the off season. They'll take it three days in a row. The next week they'll do the, another trial randomized, you know, uh, for yeah. all four conditions. We'll put a CGM on them so we can monitor glucose for compliance. We can monitor are they actually consuming this? Uh, what's happening with blood glucose while they're asleep, which will add some more information to what we've been trying to do. Um, and so we'll actually see, does it change sleep? Sleep's the primary outcome. We have secondary outcomes as well, but typically sleep's like our third outcome. And now yeah. we're going to switch it to first. So it's designed to look at sleep and we're choosing to use the, uh, the wearable technology for this study because that's what we have access to here. Um, we do have polysonography on campus, but it was we, unfeasible to run this yeah. length of a study and everybody through that type of a, a protocol. Um, but we're excited about it. So that's starting right now after uh, the national championship tonight, we're going to hop in and start um, working with these athletes um, right in January when they're back for start of sort of off season where they're still training and we've got full access to them. Yeah, amazing. I mean, that'll definitely be obviously recovery is top of mind and sleep's a big part of that. So that'll, We'll be waiting on on those results uh, to come out. And if we quickly circle back to even just the general population, when you talked about the early research and sleep in terms of the impact for the general population, you know, the, the sedentary person who's yeah. potentially, you know, 20, 30 pounds overweight, a bit hypertensive, blood sugar levels are a bit high. What are some of the big rocks for you that have, have come out of that? Yeah. So, we, yeah, we've done so much in that clinical space as well, uh, Mark. We've got, um, and really the crux of it was obesity. We've done other clinical pops, but we do a lot of work with overweight um, pre-diabetic, diabetic. We even did some, and we've done men and women in those particular studies. I tell you, one of the first studies we ran, we found that um, in these were obese women, young women. When we gave them something to before bed, we actually saw uh, a worsened blood glucose regulation the next morning. Um, mm -hmm. And so blood glucose changes, some changes with OGTTs and different studies. And I'm thinking, well, okay, well, maybe that's not something we should be doing in this population um, simply because of the management of that. And we didn't have any, there was no exercise in this particular protocol. And so the next thought we had was, what if we just included exercise? So what we did is a very short, is a four-week study, three days a week of exercise training, 
And then they got every night, they got a pre-sleep, one of the conditions, a carbohydrate, a, a casein protein or whey protein in some of those studies. When we simply included exercise, which wasn't all that stress strenuous, mm. all of the blood glucose regulation problems went away. So there were, there was absolutely zero change to anything in the, in that realm, which would have been a concerning health change if that was consistently up because you're eating before bed. Yeah. And so simply adding in the exercise bit ameliorated or, or abolished that negative response that we were seeing from the one-off one night, no exercise sort of scenario. Um, one thing wow, we missed, really highlights how kind of under moved uh, the lack of movement. Oh yeah. In, yeah. In the population, everything else, just that little dose, like you say, maybe not, nothing, even that. Well, it's, taxing, it's astonishing. It's, and we followed up on that, Mark. So the following that, the one we went into next was we thought, you know, in our, in our early studies, we would give someone one of these, these are all shakes, by the way, they're like protein shakes. We gave them like these, these they shook up the powder and drank it. Um, yeah. Which is another conversation uh, for sure. Yeah. About whole foods or not. But so we gave them these drinks and then they would go home and they would come back the next morning. And so some of the reviewers and some of our designers like, what are we missing? We don't know what they're doing when they're at home. And so, uh, yes, that's real life, but also we need a little bit more control. And so we started using um, a technique that I learned in graduate school uh, from Bob Hickner, which is called microdialysis. And microdialysis are these tiny little probes we can insert basically into any tissue. And then you you perfuse in a little bit of saline and then um, it goes between the cells and in, in the interstitial space. And then and then you have a line that comes out. And so what you get out is saline plus whatever was between your cells <clears throat> um, also comes out. And so if you're talking about lipolysis from a fat cell, we can measure glucose, glycerol, and lactate coming out of a fat cell or a muscle cell, where, depending on where you place these things. And so our thought was if we put these microdialysis probes in, now I'll know if you have normal fat metabolism while you're asleep or if you have blunted fat metabolism while you're asleep, which is what people suspected. If you ate anything due to the yeah. insulin response, you would have a completely blunted lipolytic response. But we've done a lot of these studies now and we have not seen any change at all in lipolysis from the abdominal fat tissue, subcutaneous abdominal uh, fat tissue when we, when we eat before bed, a protein dominant food. And so in our, our case, it was a hundred percent casey and hundred percent whey in those early studies. Yeah, that's tremendous. And that's in a sedentary or typical population, like you said, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we, and then we, we did that in, in men and women, and then we started doing it in resistance trained people. And so we, we designed these studies to look at resistance training, um, and then including a pre-sleep protein or not. And so, but, you know, it came down, a lot of people are like, well, is it because they're having more protein that you have a benefit? Like Luke's group kept showing over even 12 weeks of time, you had a, a benefit to pre-sleep protein in terms of muscle gain, muscle strength, um, fat-free mass gain, like actual fat-free mass change uh, measured uh, with Dexel or Bod Pod. Um, but they actually had more protein. So the group who had pre-sleep protein had more total daily protein intake. I think it ended up being like 1.9 grams per kilo instead of 1.3 grams per kilo. And so yeah. people are like, it's not that it's pre-sleep, it's that it's just more, more protein. protein. And Luke's like, yeah, we designed it to be to see if you could take it before bed, tolerate it, absorb it, and use it. And so his whole thing was like, that was the whole point. You can take it at night. You don't have to be afraid of it. It will help with mm -hmm. some of these outcomes if you're resistance training. Um, and so we're sort of along those same lines as his group showing muscle uh, protein accretion 
we're showing no change in lipolysis with a protein dominant food. And so for us, that's a net win, either no change or a positive outcome uh, from taking something before sleep. Yeah, it's one of those things that from a habit standpoint, I mean, it's people who are snacking late, you know, if you're building this quote unquote snack, which, you know, sometimes we could argue that you should or shouldn't be having. But like you say, if we build this around a protein source, then we're, we're going to be getting all these benefits. And then for the athlete, when the context changes, we could just start you know, ratcheting up and leveraging up the, the rest of the energy intake to start offsetting the demands or like you say, the context of is it a training day, competition day. Yeah, tremendous stuff. And Hey, friends. A quick note to let you know, Athlete Performance Nutrition has a brand new short course all about leveling up your mental performance and coaching skills. Learn from the NBA's Dr. Alex Auerbach about the three mindsets of elite performance and how to leverage relationships for high performance. Learn from mental performance coach Bryce Tully about habit formation strategies for success for you and your athletes. And learn from Dr. Mike Clark, mental performance coach at the University of Arizona, about strategies for having hard conversations, which let's be honest, is the reality when working in elite environments in sport. You can save 30% off the cost of this new short course with the code MINDSET at checkout. Just head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com, click on the courses tab, and use the promo code at checkout. That's athleteperformancenutrition.com, promo code MINDSET to save 30% off this tremendous new short course. All right, let's get back to the conversation. If we pivot here and talk a bit about some of the other work you've done during COVID-19 with wearables around early detection of, of infection, COVID-19, we're getting into winter months. There's sort of a spike now in, in cold and flus and different viruses. Interesting yeah. to hear, well, interesting to share, you know, this work with, with uh, again, listeners. And then I pick your brain on a, on a few uh, questions that would dovetail off this, but can you walk us through what you guys did and, and, and what, what you found? Yeah, sure. So again, um, I'm just so blessed to have uh, a colleague and a collaborator in Elisa Angela. So again, who works with us I'm, as a research person for athletics, but she's based in athletics. And so she works day to day with the athletes and she was heavily involved with interpreting all of the wearable technologies that, that the athletes are wearing and particularly in this case, um covid she was monitoring the whoop data that we had because we had bands on all yeah. of them from our grant with with this so we had female athletes we were she just had this phenomenon where several times she would notice something strange a huge change in respiratory rate was there with the was the biggest marker sometimes it was a recovery marker or something and so she made a decision live when that was happening to something was going on and she would pull that athlete, you know, she talked with sports medicine and then got the, okay, she pulled those athletes out of team events. Um, and in, in our hands, like she noticed this trend a lot. And so 14 of 16 athletes that ended up testing positive for COVID had this increase in respiratory rate three days before they tested positive. And so she was using it almost like diagnostically to check. And so she gets this report every morning, something's off. She makes a phone call. It's like, you know, they're athletes and their kids. So were you out drinking last night or are, are you, have you contracted something yeah. like we need to, it, so, you know, the athletes would push back. I don't want to do that. And so, you know, one case there was a, 
uh, a watch party, you know, like for um, one of their, their, their teammates who was playing in a, I think it might've been the Olympics right. at the time. Um, and so uh, Lisa's like, sorry, you can't go to the watch party, stay out. Sure enough, she tested positive. And, and they're all saying that saved their season because, because she pulled that player out, they ended up testing positive three days later. She may have transmitted that to more members of the team where they would have had to forfeit their games. Mm. And like I said earlier, they're very good. So they're always, you know, that a contender. And a lot of times they're in top eight, top four are winning this, um, the, the, the uh, championship. So it was, it was really a key for her to do that. And then, you know, she had these data and she's like, Hey, take a look at this. She de-identified everything, sent it over to us. We were able to, take a look at um, all of the data that we had. And there were like 33 positives that season for COVID of all the uh, athletes. And then, um, yeah, so 14 of them had, or 16 of them had usable data that were wearing whoops consistently enough to see something. So that's another part of it. You have to be wearing this regularly yeah. um, so that you can detect patterns. And then of those 16, 14 times, uh, it, it actually looked what she saw was right and she ended up seeing that they tested positive. so that's about three days out you're saying from the actual test and was there a certain range of increase in respiratory rate that was detected yeah she, yeah she was she was seeing um several patterns and in like the one-off data they were pretty consistent when we did the data set as a whole statistically it didn't pan out as well but she you know, when the one-off cases where she really knew these athletes, if she saw, you know, um, most people are sitting around like a 13 or yeah. 14 in their respiratory rate when they, when they hop up to like a 17 or 18, you know, so it's just a small percentage change, but it's noticeable. I mean, in some of our figures in the paper, you can see these gigantic increases. Mm-hmm. They look gigantic, but it's, <laughs> the respiratory rate is so consistent yeah. that that's why it's a good marker for some of the other markers were also different, but um they weren't as telling as the respiratory rate. So heart rate variability recovery score on some of these apps um, might give you some indication, but they were getting closer and closer to testing positive. And so the three days early was really nice because you had, you had some time to get tested or to wait or to keep people out and uh, sort of uh, isolated away from, from the other athletes in that way. Absolutely. And especially as you say, when you know the athletes better, you can kind of really, these things become more obvious as well from a, uh, boots on the ground standpoint yeah. and your objective is to really help the athlete or help the team so it becomes more of a straight line in terms of decision making now in terms of just other infections that athletes might be picking up you know is this a tool that we could be using potentially to be able to start to pick out just from an immune nutrition standpoint of applying certain strategies or you know before a infection yeah. becomes too pronounced yeah. what are your thoughts there our guess our guess is yes mm-hmm. i don't see why not we obviously hyper-focused that on COVID because that was the thing we were doing. Um, it just, there, I haven't seen a paper that shows that for yeah. sure, but I think you could use it the same way. She She's still using it the same way. Um, I don't know that you'd see as dramatic a increase in respiratory rate with like the, like a other, like the flu or the cold mm-hmm. or something, uh, but it's possible. And I think the key is this though. It's not just the technology. It required a person they required elisa to know the athlete inside and out so that she could make a decision about what was going on so the technology flagged it and then you needed to have a competent snc or performance staff to 
then carry through with, is this a, do we do anything about this or not? Um, I think that's part of the piece that gets missed in some of these articles that have come out on this, but it's, it's really important. Absolutely. That's definitely one where, you know, in, in elite sport and pro sport, like you say, these biomarkers and these changes are always an opportunity to have a conversation a bit like the lights in the dashboard of your car, where it's like, wait a minute, something's flashing. Let's go back to the athlete. Let's talk about how they're feeling. Let's maybe talk to the, the SNC or the coach or whomever to see, what patterns we're picking up and then we can yeah. figure out, is this just a normal blip that comes up or are we actually picking up on something that we can. We can yeah. And it, it wasn't foolproof. So, so that's important. I think also for your listeners is there are some cases where you saw an increase mm-hmm. and it, it wasn't COVID yeah. at all. Um, it was something else that could have been like Staying I said, the watch party for the Tokyo Olympics. <laughs> yeah. Or like, yeah. They're, or if, or if the, you know, athletes will go out and have some fun after a game or a practice. And then you're picking up on that or extreme lack of sleep or exams are coming and there's various things that would throw it off. So it wasn't foolproof. It was just helpful in identifying it. And she's seemed to be pretty good at it with, uh, with the record she was showing there. Awesome. If we shift gears again here and uh, talk collagen, obviously a supplement that's been very popular over the last uh, kind of half decade. When we look at things like, you know, doses and, and time of use and pain and function, you've done some work here over the years. Most recently, collagen peptide supplementation improves function, pain, and physical and mental outcomes in active adults. Can you uh, shed some light on this one for us? Yeah. Yeah. So so the background here was um, we had been in the protein space, right? So we were doing all this stuff with different types of protein and you know, I mentioned uh, caseins and ways and different versions of these. And now we're uh, like this new one that we're doing in pre-sleeps, alpha-lax. So we're kind of known for these different types of proteins and nutrient timing. Um, and so we were approached by a collagen uh, uh, manufacturer that had a collagen that they wanted to test. And so just so your listener is aware, like all of these studies are funded by industry. And so that doesn't inherently make them wrong. It just makes sure that the, whoever's running them discloses that, that that's how mm-hmm. they're run. And by the way, if you don't get that kind of funding, you can't run the study. Um, and so there is sort of a double-edged sword there just to put that out on, out on the table. So regardless, we were funded uh, for this study that was originally for six months, which is, if anyone's ever run a, a long time a intervention study, that's a very long time. And then um, my, I had a doctoral student at the time. She's now a, a postdoc uh, elsewhere, but she, she, her name is Shaloa Kiewikowski. She was phenomenal. And she had the idea of let's extend it even further. So we ended up doing nine months of collagen supplementation because we wanted to see in a long, I mean, I think it's the longest study I've ever seen on collagen mm. use. And that study, nine months took like five years. I mean, it was a very... Um, long time. You don't get all the people at once, you know, they trickle in. And so it just yeah. takes forever. Um, and so at six months, people had the option to leave because that's what they originally signed up for, or they could extend for another three months and carry on. So that's how that worked. And it threw off the numbers a little bit because some people did leave at six months. So people stayed on. And so we had to really explain what end we're mm. looking at everywhere um, in that particular paper. But with those boundaries, our primary uh, thing we were looking at was like middle-aged individuals who were active for their their whole lives and that could mean anything that could mean um like you're just physically active you've always done something or it could be athlete where we had elite masters level athletes i mean people winning things like the crossfit games for example we had people who were um 
always winning age group for triathlon in our, in our area. So there were people who were very good athletes and we had other people who walked every day for several miles. So it it ranged. Um, And then we gave, we wanted to see a dosing strategy. So we gave zero, 10 or 20 grams per day of this collagen peptide. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm pretty much skeptical about, (laughs) about things. And like, I saw what happened with glucosamine chondroitin where everyone sort of put it up on a pedestal and then it sort of came shattering down. I don't think people use it much for that purpose anymore. Um, And I don't know what was going to happen with collagen. I was aware of all this work in body composition that people like Stu Phillips had hammered into like, like this, is useless for body comp, but there are studies that show it benefits body comp um, for good or for bad. We were interested in joint pain. We had people who didn't have any diagnosed uh, like osteoarthritis. They didn't have any diag- They didn't have like ACL tears or anything. We just had people who were a little bit older, middle age, a little bit of general knee pain. And, you know, coincidentally, I fell in that same category. So I was real curious to see what, you know, what was going on with, with these uh, outcomes. All right, so six months go by. Then we get this extension, so nine months go by. Um, and we saw changes in specific areas. So I wouldn't say it was a slam dunk that collagen was like overly, I wouldn't go yelling from the rooftop about it, but here's where it looked like it was useful. Uh, for people who were more active, so we ended up uh, dichotomizing the group into high active and low active. And it wasn't even that much high active was simply, I think it was over 180 minutes per right. week or, or under 180 minutes per week of activity. So that's not a big threshold yeah. to hit, right? So if you can pull off that amount of time, then it seemed to be helpful. So the high active people had the most benefit from consuming collagen peptides, whereas the low active people did not have as much of a benefit to joint pain as the others. So that was sort of my take home from it. If you're, if you're, if you're active and you have a little bit of joint pain, this in our hands seemed to be beneficial. That's um, shown in, in several other studies in different populations as well. Not everybody, but by and large, this is kind of what mm-hmm. it's showing. Um, and for us, it was 10 grams that seemed to have the biggest impact in most categories over 20. So 20 did some things, but 10 seemed to do it just more consistently and in several different categories for these like mental component scores and these physical component scores. Um, and we think those are related where if your knee feels better, then maybe your yeah. mental status is a little better. And so those that's probably why that was linked yep. together. Um, we didn't see any difference in like range of motion scores when we were doing like goniometer tests on every single joint but we did have general feelings of lower joint pain just in general when you were more physically active with, with the lower dose, the 10 grams per day. And when you look at the totality of evidence, if we kind of pivot to even athlete back to athletes with the dose, depending on the athlete or the size of the athlete, you know, we see the different dosing regimes. Is, is there an area that you tend to fall on for highly active, you know, collegiate mm. professional athletes? I don't know that I would put it on like a grams per kg or anything at this point. There's a big range for joint for joint. It's like five to 20 grams in the literature shows if it's effective in those ranges in uh, of as low as five and as high as 20 for us, it was 10. And so I'm recommending 10. If people ask me just based on our data, 10 seemed to be the most 
impactful. And I, I don't know, people might argue about it. I, I'm not saying it's the cure all to anything. Um, but I've, you know, anecdotally, I still have people, I got an email this week from a former participant. that's like, gosh, I, I, I've never had this much relief. And this was a person who was in the control group and then switched into the placebo when they or uh, switched into the um, collagen when they finished, they got um, as an incentive, they got like actual collagen when they yep. finished the study. And they wrote back, oh, I wish I was on this. I, <laughs> I never had so much joint relief. And honestly, not everybody felt that yep. way. Um, it's just like anything, but I, I take it and I like 10 grams. For a sure. And a couple of questions that dovetail off that. One of them is around protein intake. And this might be why we're seeing differences, even general population to athletes. You know, I've heard some experts, you know, guys like Stu Phillips and others talk about, you know, if we're achieving our daily total protein intake and dividing it through the day, you know, are we actually getting, you know, more benefit from, from adding in the collagen? You know, what are yeah. your thoughts on, on where the research at there? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I've heard this argument a lot. I've talked to Stu about it before. And um, yeah, I think it, his argument makes sense for sure. Like, but, you know, from a muscle perspective, without a doubt, you're not wanting, you shouldn't be taking collagen to, to help with muscle protein synthesis or your general protein needs not enough leucine. at all, because yeah, right. It's, it's incomplete. I mean, there's, there's things that are missing from the collagen. I would take it as a separate protein. I do take it as a separate protein and I'm actually seeing now you might've seen it too. There's some companies that are mixing them together now. So mm -hmm. I've seen it now it's, it's way and collagen. So you can take one thing, um, a couple of things about it. And I don't know, the mechanistic side, we're still working on. Uh, actually, uh, Shaloa Kiyokovsky is, is working on some of the mechanistic piece of this now. We have we took a lot of blood and we're analyzing all kinds of um, markers of degradation and accretion that are that are happening to try to explain mm -hmm. some things. So unfortunately, it's not a clear picture, so it's going to be a rough paper to write. Um, That's life, uh, right? That's the kind of uh, the, 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 the complexity it, it of uh, real world situations with pain and athletes and the rest of it, right? Yeah, it, and, and it does get complicated, but I would take them separately. I wouldn't take them in the same way. And the, what people think the magic is with collagen is like these dye and tripeptides, these hydroxyproline, uh, proline yeah. derivatives. Um, and then the people are like, well, how much actually gets through the gut? And I've actually seen a paper as high as a, a nonapeptide, so like a nine amino acid peptide getting through the gut. That's I've never seen anything that big mm. get through. Typically it's a, just an amino acid or maybe a tri dye or tripeptide that's yep. getting through. They also think the magic's in these combinations and the structure of these uh, proline, hydroxyproline combinations. I don't think you can take a specific collagen and target a specific tissue like it's being marketed right now. So you take this kind, it goes to your knee. You take this yeah, kind, yeah. it goes to your tender ligament. Too so simplistic. I don't know. That seems, yeah, that seems a bit far-fetched because you're going to degrade some of it anyway. Um, I don't know. In our hands, I would just take them both. I would take them for separate reasons. And if I had to pick one, I would choose the way first. And then I would go to the next one if you have these joint pain issues. And we didn't study it, but a lot of people take this stuff for skin yeah. care, which is outside of my <laughs> scope. But there's a whole other reason that people might take it separately than like a whey protein. And whey protein, as far as I checked, isn't fixing skin wrinkle issues. And there's actually a lot of data on collagen in that space. So there's, there's something to it. It's, um, but I wouldn't take them. Uh, I wouldn't exclude way to take a collagen yeah, ever. I'd use it as an add on. It's, it's interesting as well from a practitioner standpoint, because the form factors are different in terms of how they sort of taste like a, a shake has a certain texture and viscosity and flavor to it. 
Whereas a collagen-based drink can be hidden in things. It can be taken as a drink that's kind of more refreshing. And it sounds trivial, but when athletes are consuming so many things a day or so many shakes a day, you can use different form factors, you know, just like you're saying of adding it into a tea or, or having a drink, a ready-made drink that's got this in it, and we can divide out dosing. So certainly something for people to be able to continue to play around with, but it uh, seems similar that some athletes and some individuals will will swear by it and say, Hey, I feel great. And others say, well, I don't yeah. have something, something else. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, so where we're going with it now is, uh, so in Shaloa's new position, which is at, um, UAMS with uh, Arnie Ferrando, big protein researcher, and they have access to uh, ACL patients. And so the next collaborative study that we're working on with them is going to be collagen use before, during, and through ACL reconstruction. And so uh, in terms of return to play, that could have bigger implications in this well-designed study. So we're, we're at a place now where we're, we're seeking funding for that. We've got um, some really good leads on that. So I, if it comes through, then that'll be our next paper with collagen. Tremendous. I mean, great for athletes and the general population. So we'll be looking forward to that one as well. Well, listen, yeah. Mike, I want to respect your time. We're coming to the end here. Just zooming out to 30,000 feet. Obviously, you're, you know, you're busy at home. You're busy at work. Um, practitioners listening in, always trying to figure out how to fit everything in a day in terms of their fueling or their exercise. You know, for you, what are some of the the big rocks or the things that you try to, to maintain or include in your routine to, to keep yourself you know, staying healthy, staying sharp? as best you can with two little kids at home. Yeah. Gosh, you know, I think about to when I was doing giving advice before I had children <laughs> and I remember like thinking, put it on your calendar. It's going to happen. And, um, then I had children. I'm like, well, then someone's vomiting or someone's home from <laughs> school or, and these things go kind of out the window. So some of that, those things are like changing in my world. Um, but exercise obviously is key. I, I, it's a foundation for me. Like, I just don't feel right if I'm not getting that in. And so I've been pretty consistent and that ebbs and flows for me at what time of day that is currently it's early morning. So I can get that done before the family's awake. Um, and so I'm fortunate to have a garage gym build out from the COVID times and I just maintained it. So that's really, really helpful for me. Um, and it's a luxury that I, that I am aware of, but I'm, Hey, can you talk about the difference? I'm just curious to pick your brain again, like the difference training in your twenties or thirties, training in your forties of like how, you know, training for pain relief or for energy or for stress relief versus some of the things mm -hmm. you trained for previously. I mean, what are the, how does it impact you when you get the exercise in? Oh, golly. It's like tremendously. So all through up through college was training for sports. So that was all for ice hockey. Um, but I, I have to say, like, I, I think I did that wrong. Like I was, mixed up in this world of do I want to look like a bodybuilder or an athlete and that's confusing for a lot of people and so I think I got that probably not exactly right uh which may have hindered things honestly as I was training I got out of that and went into like long distance triathlon for about 10 years started doing up to like a half Ironman distance in in racing uh, we had children I got off the bike just for like safety purposes I don't really ride uh, outside anymore much um and then got into high intensity, shorter duration, you know, uh, crossfit type of exercises where I could sweat a lot and, and move and be sort of functional or whatever. Um, and then nowadays, the, honestly, I feel the best when I'm strength training. I, I don't hurt as much when I'm doing straight strength training, um, but I incorporate just about everything. And I just make sure for my children, like 
they see this a lot, my, my wife and I are exercising and we never say it's about weight. We never say it's about these things. The conversation is always about fun and it makes me feel good. Why are you doing that? It makes me feel good. Come on, let's go. Um, and I think that's really how it's changed a ton for the family aspect of it. Like just this morning, one of them got up early, so they came in their garage and and saw me doing these things. I'm just like, yeah, I'm having fun out here. What yeah. are you doing? You know, so it, that conversation is different. But for me, I have to purposely put in like, I have to have the, the discipline to take a day off. And that's something I never had to think about before, where I have to be disciplined enough to stop trying to go hard and instead take a walk or do like a, a stretching day or like a yoga recovery or something like that. Um, and just never had to think about that before. Cause you know, things do start to you know, feel a little pain here and there. And I'm of the mentality to grind through it. And if someone's around me, I get competitive and I would grind through it and hurt myself. And so it's, yeah. it's like, just take a step back and realize like my purpose now is not really for sport, but I do want to be able to get up, do anything or at least be competitive if you called me and said hey let's go play this sport that i could at least hang with you or not just be embarrassed you know by, by coming out and, and hanging out so that's really it being well-rounded in all these different spaces i make sure to, to hit every sort of um, energy system yeah. weekly uh to make sure I'm, you know keeping up amazing well mike appreciate you coming out the time today you know where's the best place people to keep up with with your work and all the great stuff you're doing at the university yeah so the regular socials i guess so um at at Mike Ormsby is uh, Instagram and Twitter. We also have one for the lab, which is at FSUISSM. So we're the Institute of Sports Sciences and Medicine. So at FSUISSM, we have several outlets for, you know, seeing what we're doing in the lab or what we're doing with different training or events and or speaking gigs around different places. Amazing. Well, we'll definitely include those in the show notes and uh, appreciate you taking the time. All right, Mark. Thanks a bunch. Thanks for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. As always, appreciate you taking the time. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. It's a big help to the show and keeps us attracting the best of the best in performance nutrition. All right, see you next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's performance podcasts.